Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Sheik. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. And today's hashtag Jill's Pin is from my alma mater, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Not from my uh, alma mater, Columbia, because Columbia has not behaved so well in terms of free speech on campus. And so I'm wearing that because that's our subject today, one that I think is extremely important and extremely tricky because where the line for First Amendment falls, it's very hard to determine. It is a very important subject and being a college student right now is not easy, especially if you're Jewish. Across colleges in America, Jewish students are facing chants such as intifada and from the river to the sea. They fear for their lives simply for being Jewish, or even if not Jewish, for supporting Israel and its right to defend itself. Even worse, as many universities' uh, presidents have made clear, when it comes to calling out hate and denouncing attacks on Jewish students, there simply is not the same urgency compared to other marginalized groups. So like Jill said, today we are going to talk about why that is, what is the line for free speech on college campuses, and how can this change on college campuses? And we have a great guest to talk about that, someone who has written about this subject, uh, one of the many thoughtful pieces that we have been reading. Her name is Jennifer Rubin, who I know most of you will already know, both from the Politicon network of podcasts, where she now uh, hosts Green Room with Jennifer Rubin. But she is also, of course, someone who's been on our show and who is a columnist for the Washington Post, as well as an MSNBC analyst. Um, So she did write one of the great op-ed pieces, which of course we will put in our show notes for you to read yourself, along with several others that we found instructive and educational, and talking about why the university leaders have been so slow to react. We're slow, we're saying not the most politically correct things, and um, I think it'll be an interesting conversation Jennifer, it is great to have you on the show, and we look forward to this very important conversation. It's a pleasure to see you, Jill and Victor. No, thank you so much for coming on. This is actually your second time coming on. Um, Your last time was for your book, um, which is great, and today is for a much more complex and tricky subject, but it's one that's so important that we both want to cover. I think it's important to set the scene for our audience because while anti-Semitism has been bad on college campuses since October 7th um, of this year, it hasn't really been a new phenomenon. So I'm wondering if you can provide some history about how college campuses haven't really been great for Jewish students throughout American history. Well, I'll date myself, but I was in college at UC Berkeley in the 1980s. and. Uh, And for those of you who know, uh, Israel was at war in Lebanon in 1982, and you saw it then. Um, Groups that were supportive of Palestinians actually became, from my perspective, supportive of, in that case, Hezbollah, so that they felt that it was necessary in order to support the Palestinian cause to support groups that, frankly, were categorized as terrorists. And this pattern has repeated itself over and over again. There are many on the far left, and I'm not talking about the mainstream of the Democratic Party. I'm not even talking about progressives in the Democratic Party. I'm really talking about the left left. 
that sees Israel as a um, occupier, that sees Israel as a colonizer, that puts it in the same frank uh, framing rather that they see African countries, um, and therefore they hold Israel responsible for all bad things that happen, and any uh, what they call revolutionary action against Israel is legitimate in their eyes. This is wrong, of course. This is absolutely wrong. Uh, the Jewish people have a history in the region going back thousands of years, um, and we just celebrated Hanukkah, which goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to the temple. That's the temple in Israel uh, where Jews um, found the oil um, that we celebrated at Hanukkah time. Jews, of course, um, even before World War II, began to identify a place um, for a Jewish homeland. And the Zionist movement actually began in the late 19th century. Uh, Theodore Herzl was the leader. And from then, Jews began to return to their ancestral home. And they didn't invade, they didn't come with guns, they purchased land and they began setting up what we now know to be kibbutzim um, and began to create a society there. After World War II, of course, um, the British who had controlled the area had been given a mandate after World War I, uh, turning the region over from the Ottoman Empire to the British, um, really wanted to get out. And uh, the Israelis uh, in the wake of the Shoah in World War II, um, felt it especially necessary to create a safe haven for Jews. And so what the UN did, and this history is very important, is it created two states, two states for two people, an Arab state and an Israeli state. And no sooner had the mandate come to an end and the declaration of the state of Israel come into being, but those Arab states attacked Israel. And they attacked, there was a war, and there was an armistice uh, that settled in 1949. That did not include the West Bank, that did not include Jerusalem, um, but it was uh, somewhat larger than the original state. That remained in place until 1967, when in anticipation of a, a massive attack from all sides in the Arab states, um, the 1967 war took place. And that was when Israel recaptured uh, Jerusalem, recaptured uh, the uh, West Bank uh, and other areas as well. Um, as we all know, um, fast forward, Israel since that time has given back part of its uh, territories. It's given back the Golan Heights, and it removed itself. It evacuated from Gaza in 2005. It also made peace with Egypt. It has made peace with several of its Arab neighbors, but it has not resolved the Palestinian issue. And we now fast forward to October 7. And Hamas, which is recognized as a terrorist organization, attacked Jews living in what was pre-1949 Israel to underscore they were not going after, quote, settlers as if the actions would even be justified under that scenario. But they went into what is really um, the oldest part of the Jewish state, and they committed these massacres um, and sexual violence, murders, kidnapped several hundred and have continued to mistreat, sexually abuse, uh, really torture the people that they have held in Gaza. And so we come to the current situation. 
And I think college campuses, frankly, have always been places for political speech and for political demonstration. Um, and uh, it's always been a place where the left has found um, a happy home in academia and has um, been able to organize students or bring in people to organize students. Um, and there's always been a robust argument um, on campus about just about any issue you can come up with. But Israel hits a particular place because the far left has made Israel a bogeyman, a stand-in for colonialism, a stand-in for racism. And so when October 7 hit, this literally, um, you know, created a uh, just a firestorm, not literally, but figuratively created a firestone, uh, firestorm on campuses. And you had... Um, Certain groups of students, um, in particular, the um, several of them that um, some of which have been now removed from campus for their activities, um, which went beyond speech. Um, there were death threats. There were assaults. Um, there was physically blocking uh, people. There was incidents of arson, incidents of vandalism. And there was also demonstrations in which slogans that most Jewish students regard as genocidal or uttered. Um, for example, from the river to the sea, meaning that the entire state of Israel needed to be recaptured. Um, that does not mean that they're going to um, leave them there. It means that they're going to remove them or kill them. Um, and that is, in fact, genocide. Hamas is, uh, in its charter, is committed to genocide. So when they celebrated, quote, the martyrs who are a genocidal group, or they introduced these slogans, Jewish students, the wider Jewish community, of course, was outraged. Now, we come to where it gets very tricky. And um, at the risk of becoming legalistic, um, let's kind of parse this out. Universities um, are entitled to have utter free speech. In other words, anything goes, you can say anything to anyone, any place, any time. By and large, universities have not chosen to do that. They have come up with, at times, really, um, you know, complex, almost Talmudic codes of conduct um, that bar all kinds of speech, all kinds of harassments. They have propagated trigger warnings on certain materials. They have come up with definitions of microaggressions. They have really um, gone over backwards to restrict free speech. So in this environment, when we're seeking to protect people from all sorts of things, Jewish students in the Jewish community said, well, why aren't you protecting Jews from anti-Semitism and from these other actions? And that's where the presidents of these universities kind of stalled out. Um, and they didn't know what to say. They went up to the hill. They kind of froze. They couldn't really figure out why their speech code would denounce a whole bunch of stuff and not anti-Semitism. And then, uh, led to the resignation of one of the presidents of Penn, who, by the way, had had difficulties well before that hearing. There was a whole series of incidents in which she did not um, react uh, appropriately to anti-Semitic speech, um, according to many on the campus. And the other president survived, but there has now been this hollow world. 
just to make things even more complicated, I'll ask one, I'll add one last wrinkle and um, then um, we can plunge in. There is a law on the books, Title VI, which says that universities must prevent discrimination, harassment on a whole list of factors, race, religion, gender, and the Department of Education, um, long before this incident, included ancestral origin. And that includes your uh, Jewish identity, your Jewish faith. So if those things are protected, why weren't the universities protecting against discrimination, harassment, and all these other things? And that gets to the heart of the issue, which is what's speech, what's not speech, what should campuses allow, what should they disallow? And we put that in the larger framework of a horrendous uptake in anti-Semitism around the country. The latest indication is since October 7, there have been over 2,000 incidents, including um, threats, vandalism, assaults. And so this takes place, obviously, within a larger cauldron of um, issues uh, and um, obviously robust debate about the war itself. So that's the long version of how we got to where we are. A long but very fascinating and very accurate um, history that I think is when you use the word context, which was a very bad word for the presidents to use, and we can talk about that. But in this sense, setting the context of this discussion um, is important. And you you used one word that sets me off. And I'm, I'm not that sensitive to words, but there's been a lot of use of the word occupation. And when they say occupation in the context of Gaza, there is no Israeli occupation of Gaza. Gaza is ruled by Hamas, which by the way, hasn't bothered to have elections for 16 years, but anyway, they are in charge and there is no Israeli presence there. So we cannot talk about occupation in Gaza. You can in the West Bank, and I suppose some of the protesters are saying that Israel is occupying Israel, which, as you pointed out, is for many hundreds of thousands of years has been a Jewish homeland. I mean, if you go back to the Bible, that's the Jewish homeland. So um, I just want to point out to everyone that the word occupation should never be used in the context of the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th. And um, you've given some very good examples of the attacks that go beyond speech because you've raised the question, one, free speech is one thing. I was on the board of the ACLU when there was a, allowed to be a march in Skokie of Nazis. And Skokie is a very Jewish neighborhood. And it was very upsetting. There are a lot of Holocaust survivors at the time there were. And by the way, when you say you aged yourself, I was already in law school during the 67 war. So what can I say? Um, um, you know, I've lived through a lot of this. I was alive when Israel was formed um, as a new homeland for Jews. Um, obviously not when it was formed during the Bible. I'm not that old. Um, but anyway, um, I, I think the examples, you know, a mass shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue 
precedes this, and there are many, many other attacks. But the college one raises the issue of, one, these were private schools versus the University of Illinois, which is a public school and is therefore governed by the First Amendment. Private schools, not so much. So I want to talk about what rules apply and where, even if the First Amendment applies, there's still a line. There are certain things you cannot say, and there are certain rules on campus. And I want to point out that the um, president of UPenn, who is no longer, is a lawyer. How were these presidents so unprepared for what was an obvious question? And why couldn't they have said, well, first of all, you, you could have made an argument maybe that there was no genocide being talked about when they were talking about intifada, because again, if you define the word, it means an uprising. It doesn't mean killing. It means protesting. And so I mean, there's all these questions about the First Amendment and what does it mean on a college campus where when I was in school, we valued the diversity of viewpoints and having civil debates. Where have we gotten to now? Well, I think you raised the central issue, which is private universities could have an absolutely free flow of ideas, um, barring the very extremes. You can't shout fire at a crowded room. Um, you can't make um, death threats against people. Um, without those um, extremes, they could say these are places of complete and total free exchange of ideas. And there is speech we don't like, but um, there is um, this is what a free campus is supposed to be. The private universities in this country have rejected that. And they may regret it now because once they went down the road of saying, well, we don't like this kind of speech and we don't like that kind of speech and we're going to go beyond the normal definitions of discrimination. We're going to go beyond the normal definitions of harassment that have been defined in employment law and accommodation law. Once they went down that road, they kind of made their own bed. And once you're going to have all those rules and regulations, then Title VI kicks in and it says you can't treat one group differently than another group. That's the definition of discrimination. So whether they intended it or not, um, this is where they are. They're in this boat because they put themselves in this boat. And um, if you had rolled back um, the you know, the the days and the years and said, you know, the free speech movement in the 1960s essentially allowed students to demonstrate and say whatever they want. They couldn't occupy buildings. They couldn't harm people, but they could say essentially all they want. If you had preserved that, the presidents could have gone up to the Hill and said, you know what, we condemn anything that goes beyond speech, but that's the rule for the campus. We have free and open speech. And that's the rule. They may regret having gone down that road, but you're right. Having gone down that road, they certainly know they went down that road and how they could not have answered that question. They were not, she was not only a lawyer, the president of Penn, they were prepped by lawyers. Yes, and yeah. you think one of them would have brought the issue that you're a private university um, and the First Amendment doesn't really apply to you. Um, but 
in fairness to the lawyers, let's not blame the lawyers. The lawyers probably told them, you know, you got this speech code and you apply it in all these ways. So you're in a little bit of a fix here. And they're right. They are in a fix. They're in a fix of their own making. Yeah. And, and I, I want to point out one of the worst things of this is the hypocrisy because there yeah. is not equal enforcement. We're going to include, in addition to your pieces on this uh, in our show notes, one by Brett Stevens, who really made the point about if you're going to do this, you have to do it the same for all. And that raises for me, I don't know if you saw the, the, um, the Wall Street Journal, which I seldom read their opinion pieces. Mm -hmm. um, but I happened to see one that really got to me, um, actually two, but one was about the, it, not exactly the occupation, I don't know if that's the right word, of the library. But it was, they had hung a banner, uh, pro-Palestinian banner. Every, almost everyone in the library was wearing a keffiyeh, the black and white scarf. Um, although a friend of mine pointed very carefully, if you look in the far back, there were two students wearing the um, Jewish shawl, uh, the, the, not, not the scarf. I, I don't know what the, sh the shawl is a, called. A talit. A, ta a talit. Or a it's, talis. It's the same. A talis is, I thought, just the the narrow one. This was the pointy one. Anyway, maybe it is a talus. Um, and they were handing out leaflets as you entered the library, pro-Palestinian, and engaging in very pro-Palestinian activity. That's the library at Harvard. And to me, that is something that the school cannot allow as a matter of free speech. That is a place where students come to study and to get research. And it has to be open to everyone. So that that particularly bothered me. As um, and, and the rabbi of a Shabbat at Harvard was also told he could have a menorah in front of the library if he took it away at night because it would be vandalized if he did not. Um, so those are the kind of things that seem to me need equal enforcement and right. checks. And there is something called time and place um, regulation, which as long as it is content neutral, in other words, they wouldn't allow those banners and the flyers, um, right. regardless of what they said, because that's a place to study, that you can regulate those types of things. Um, and as you know, in Skokie, the issue was, well, they had given these kinds of um, licenses, these kinds of permits to march to other groups, and you can't um, within the context of, you know, a, a permitting system, discriminate on the content of the speech so long as you do it. So it is perfectly reasonable, for example, in a classroom, you say, we're not going to allow demonstrations in a classroom because we can't teach if everyone is shouting and carrying on. That would be a place and time. And I would add that the universities could, if they wanted, designated a designate a place on campus for whatever demonstrations they want. And that would prevent some of this issue of blocking people or blocking buildings or interfering with people's uh, you know, passage on the campus. They could give them a place and say, that's it. And if you want to don't want to be exposed to it, you walk around it. And if you want to be able to demonstrate that's the place you're going to be in. And they do this, by the way, at presidential conventions um, at the um, RNC and the DNC. They put a whole pen out there and they say, go for it. 
Um, yeah. And that way they don't interfere. They don't pose a security issue. They don't block people. You don't have issues of trespassing and all the rest. And it works out pretty well. Um, again, universities have not chosen to do this. But just before we went on, we were talking about the difference between public and private universities. It's very interesting that public universities have not had these huge issues. Now, part of the reason I would suggest is geography. If you look at the map of anti-Semitic incidents, they tend to be grouped in the Northeast in California. And that's because that's where the major Jewish population centers are. The protesters go where the Jewish students are. They don't go to University of Wyoming. There are very few Jews there, which kind of raises the question, what are they really doing? Are they there to protest against American Jews or they're there to protest in favor of whatever they're protesting for? You would think that University of Wyoming, they'd be just as interested in spreading the message as they would on Harvard but they don't. So part of the explanation is that many state schools, and remember, they're state schools, land-grant schools, all over the country have not had the issue because, frankly, the pro-Palestinian groups don't bother to demonstrate and make this an issue where there are not Jewish students. And that tells you something, by the way, about their motive, because when you're protesting against Jewish students because of something Israel did, that is the definition of anti-Semitism. But let's leave that alone. There have been other campuses where there were demonstrations, but they were handled rather well. Um, the University of uh, Michigan, the um, University of, um, I believe it was Syracuse, that they have drawn some lines. They've said, we as the university condemn what has happened on October 7. You want speech? Fine. But we're not going to be threatening one another. We're not going to be um, interfering. And essentially, the issue kind of died down. Um, they set some important ground rules. They drew some lines. And people then kind of went around their business. Um, so I think it's possible to navigate this path. You just have to decide whether you're fish or fowl. If you're fish, if you want to have free speech, you have free speech. And if you're not, you're going to have to be able to apply it in all these other ways. And I think universities haven't decided what they want to be when they grow up. Um, they don't know what they want to be. Do they want to be bastions of um you know, correctness and um, not speaking things that would upset other people, um, which leads us down a very bad path? Or do they want to be places of robust free speech, which means you allow a lot of speech that is hurtful, that's insulting, that's wrong. Um, and that's the price of free speech in a free society. And that's, of course, what I feel like colleges should be. Jill and I were both in Chicago, and UChicago is known to have a very, very um, free academic campus where they don't really, I think it was a couple of years ago, they sent out a letter to students saying that they don't support trigger warnings. They don't condone these creation of intellectual safe spaces. So you know that seems to me what college campuses should be about. Um, but I want to ask you about those college presidents that we heard from a few weeks ago um, from UPenn, Harvard, and MIT. Like Jill said, since then, the UPenn president has resigned. Do you feel like the other presidents should resign as well? No, I don't. Um, and I think that for both a um, sort of legalistic reason as well as a, uh, a broader policy reason, the legalistic reason is 
they really should not get into the habit of firing people when politicians squawk. That's a bad precedent. And you only encourage politicians to call for not only the firing of college presidents, but the firing of news heads, the firing of all kinds of things. And frankly, we've had enough of um, politicians trying to regulate speech and regulate academic freedom in this country. It leads to no good. We've seen it in Florida under Governor DeSantis. We've seen it with book bans and all the rest. So I don't want universities to reflexively fire people because a politician is telling them. The broader policy issue is we need somebody inside who has credibility with the academic community to figure this out and to act in good faith. Um, I'll point to the uh, president of Harvard, uh, President Gay, who says, listen, I've learned a lot. I now understand she didn't say it quite this way, but the fix we're in because anti-Semitism is a form of discrimination and racism. So you need who's going to reform these institutions. The issue is not who heads them. It's what their policy is going to be and what kind of environment they want to be. So unless you have people who have the confidence of the university itself, that is the donors, the board of trustees, the faculty, the students, you're never going to fix the problem. It's just going to be one tumult after another. And you make it personal. This has nothing to do with these particular people. It has to do with the institutions and the way they've set themselves up. The new president of Penn is going to have exactly the same problems as the old president of Penn until they figure out what they want to do. So I think I was relieved, frankly, that not all of them were forced to abandon ship. Um, I think they behaved very badly, very stupidly. You would think people of major institutions like that would have greater presence of mind, greater emotional intelligence, um, greater foresight. But be that as it may, they are who they are. And now I think we want to see what they're going to do. Um, what is Harvard going to do? Are they just going to add, you know, uh, anti-Semitism to their code? Are they going to rethink their code? I don't know what they have in mind. But I will say this, if you're going to have all kinds of sensitivity training and have students sign off on these policies, you can't leave out anti-Semitism because that's a form of discrimination and racism. And I think it's almost like they never figured that out before. And I think that's in part because they have this left mindset that Jews are not a protectable group, that Jews and Israel are number one white, which would be news to many Jews who've been discriminated as non-white for many years, uh, and that they don't need protection. But that's, of course, nonsense. Religious discrimination and anti-Semitism is the oldest hatred, not a non-issue. So now that they get that, now that President Gay, I think, understands that, my hope would be that they come up with some workable rules that strike some kind of balance. I don't think Harvard is going to go back to the days of anyone says anything anywhere. But I think they do need to rethink the micromanagement of speech and of the way in which they allow free demonstrations. And I come back to the idea of having certain designated areas. And if you are going to harass students outside of that area, if you're going to go into the library, if you're going to go into the classroom, well, then you're going to be disciplined for that. And that just makes it easier for everyone inside. Can the you imagine 
Can you imagine in the library a banner being hung that was pro-Nazi, pro-white racist? Yes. It's unthinkable that would have been punished, which brings us back to they need rules that at the very least require equal treatment for all speech. And that's what has been missing here. Um, And they need to make clear that the physical threatening of students for whatever reason, because of the color of their skin or because of their religious affiliation uh, should not be permitted. That's not speech. And um, again, I grew up in the uh, free speech era of the sixties. And so I, and I never suffered from having a discussion of uh, unequal views. And I, I think, you know, students now with these trigger warnings and stuff are too protected. We need to be able to have different points of view. Um, but I, I don't know why the, the, the uh, universities weren't better prepared to yeah. deal with this, um, particularly at a private school where there is more freedom than, you know, than a state university. Um, but let's let's get back to talking about how you develop rules that allow for equal treatment um, and where the line should be um, on campuses for whether it's yelling fire in a theater or whether it's something that you just don't want to hear, you don't like it, but it's not going to cause an immediate threat which is the clear and present danger test that we now have for the First Amendment. What do you think of that? Well, I think it would be better if they could um, kind of erase, you know, take the eraser, take all this stuff off the blackboard and start from scratch, because then you could set broader, you know, globalist policies. You could say you can demonstrate here, you can't demonstrate there. You can say, um, Advancing political views, even ones that other people find noxious, is fine. It's not fine to call for the eradication of certain groups. You could come up with whatever rules you want, but I think that's almost impossible now for these universities because they've gone so far down the road that if they tried to do it, they would find resistance from all the other groups, which are constantly in a turmoil on the campus. So it's not an easy thing to kind of redo it all. Um, and that's what these university presidents are going to have to you know, wrestle with and going to have to deal with. You know, I would also say that universities were pummeled because they didn't institutionally make a statement about October 7th. I guess we've just come to the point where universities have to make a statement about everything because what's the difference? Do they have to make a statement when, you know, a major piece of legislation is passed? Do they have to make a statement when every war breaks out? They've gotten in the business of acting as sort of a moral political actor institutionally. And that's why people were so disturbed that they didn't say something in this instance. If you're going to put out a statement about George Floyd, for example, um, and racial justice, why not put out something about this? And this gets back to this even-handed policy. There, I think universities would be very wise to say, you know what, we're going to not 
get in the business of making public declarations about major events outside the university. We're a university. We're going to talk about what goes on on our campus. We're going to talk about um, the education of our students. And students can think for themselves. Students can take all kinds of positions and, frankly, demonstrate. But why do we need the University of Alabama or Harvard University to weigh in on world or political events? What's the the need there? Um, So that's one area in which I think they would be wise to say, you know, we're just not going to say anything about these major events and leave it at that. So I just want to follow up on that because sorry, Victor. What about faculty? So let's say I know Victor is taking courses in current events. Um, So if you're in a modern history class, what happens there? Does the teacher address what's going on? Um, Are the rules different for faculty speaking out than for students speaking out? Students are suffering. Law firms are not interviewing uh, law students who spoke out pro-Palestinian, who wrote letters. Um, So they're facing consequences. Should faculty face consequences? Well, this gets back to what should faculty be doing? I think not talking about current events is the worst of all outcomes, particularly if you're teaching a modern history class or you're teaching a sociology class or a political science class. That's what they do. But There is a line which does alarm me in which certain professors have actually singled out Jewish students or blamed them, for instance. That is totally inappropriate. That is beyond the realm. That's improper uh, pedagogy. Um, That is improper um, discrimination among students. So you would think if you got that far in your professor, you know the difference between teaching and singling out, um, you know, vilifying the students in your classroom and the rest. Now, many students complain that their faculty are too political, that they have obvious points of view. I get that. Sometimes you just want, you know, the, the straight scoop, but that's what universities are about. People with all kinds of points of view teach all kinds of classes. And pretty soon students learn which classes have which points of view, and you can choose or not choose them. And many classes, remember, have none of these issues. And I want to stress this because I hear from people on college campuses all over the country, and they say, we don't have any of this. What are you all talking about? We don't have any of this. We just go to math class. We go to you know history class. And that is right. What we're talking about basically is a very small cross-section of what they call elite schools. Some of them are private, some of them are public, but it is not the majority of campuses. Someone said there's something like 70, no, it can't be 70,000, must be 700,000 college students. Maybe that's wrong. Um, But um, this involves like a tiny amount, the number of people who go to Ivy League schools and the elite schools that are not within the Ivy League, like Stanford, Berkeley, you know, Chicago, that's a tiny percentage of the college campuses. So it's unique to those schools which have gotten themselves into these kind of political fixes. Um, And, you know, I do talk to people at, you know, University of, you know, Kansas, and they say, I don't know what you're talking about. Everything seems fine here. Uh, And they're shocked that this kind of stuff, you know, has torn asunder other campuses. 
that's actually what I've noticed as well. I have a lot of friends who go to those type of schools and they really aren't experiencing any of the things that are happening at Harvard or right. uh, Columbia or any of those schools. And I'm wondering, you know, we're now at a time when a lot of students and parents are thinking about colleges and where to apply for colleges. I think this past week, um, some early decisions came out, but given what has sort of happened on these elite um, campuses, where at least a lot of my friends in high school thought of those as sort of, you can be successful only if you go to those type of colleges. Should people be rethinking, um, you know, those type of colleges and the value that they get from those universities compared to other schools? Well, I have gone through this process twice um, with my sons. I thank goodness it is behind me because the whole process is miserable for a lot of reasons having nothing to do with this. But I would say three things. First of all, people make way too much out of where you go to school. Um, after your first job, no one ever asks you where you went to school. They ask what you did at your last job. And you can get a fine education and get a fine job in many places. I went to a public school, UC Berkeley. Do I feel like I missed out because I didn't go to Harvard? No, that's ridiculous. Um, so people obsess thinking the only possible place to go is this very small network of schools. And things like the US News and World Report ranking and other rankings make parents and students crazy. And they make universities crazy because one of the criteria for ranking high is that you're super selective, meaning that you recruit hundreds of thousands of kids who get a raised expectation that they too might go to Harvard, and then you still select only the few thousand that get to go. So the notion of select schools, of some schools being you know better than others, pick a good school, which is good for the area, if you know what you want to do, that you want to do. So if you want to have a good background in engineering, look at a place like Georgia Tech, um, which is um, highly regarded. You don't have to go to MIT. You can go to Georgia Tech. You can go to UCLA. You can go to um, uh, University of Indiana. These are places that have very good departments. So think less about the name and think more about the school and what you want to do with it. The second I would say is if a college campus cannot physically protect students, I would take them off the list. If they're so incompetent that they allow some students to physically harm other students, why would you let your, your child go there? That's absurd. So I would make sure as you're going through this process that you question them. What kind of behavior is allowed? How do you enforce rules when students violate them? What kind of security do you have? What are the rules of engagement when you have a public speaker on campus? There have been a lot of issues. There were issues when I went to school about which you know kind of speakers could come, whether you could demonstrate inside the room, outside the room. So investigate and ask those questions. And the third, I would say, is that students have a variety of reasons for picking a school. And one of them is, do you feel comfortable in that kind of environment? If you're going to go to an Ivy League school, you better be prepared for this ethos. Every school has its own ethos. Um, University of Chicago is a very kind of free market place, both in ideology as well as uh, instruction. And that's going to give you a different environment. Um, so you're not going to fight, you know, you're not going to, you know, 
unfill an ocean with a teaspoon. If you don't like the ethos of the places that you are looking at, don't go there. And you say, well, you shouldn't make these places off bounds. No one is saying you can't go there, but you should go in with your eyes open. If you're going to go to an Ivy League school, this is kind of what you're going to get. Um, and if that bothers you, go to a different kind of school that we just talked about was equally good. So I think people have to exercise a little bit of common sense. Um, and I think universities, if they get the message that they are turning off a segment of highly rated high school graduates, they may modify themselves a little bit. There is a marketplace of schools. And if you, you know, if a if they get a bunch of turndowns and basically as they follow up, they find out it's because you people are lunatics and don't let anyone say anything. Or conversely, you people are letting, you know, um, vandals run around wild. They may get the message. I, I think that's great advice. And, you know, one of the things I also want to ask you about is, uh, you know, one of the things that seems to be driving a lot of the response from young people maybe is a lack of awareness um, about basic Jewish history, maybe critical thinking. Yes. I don't know. Like a recent poll I saw showed that almost a third of young people don't even know what the Holocaust is. How do we change that? Is it by teaching more history to people? Like how, how can we get this to be different? Because that's concerning. I think that is absolutely right. And I think a large number of the students who were out there did not have the background that we've just talked about today. They see a demonstration. They see people are um, protesting for an oppressed group of people. And sure, I'll join in. Of course, you know, I want all people to be free. So there is a huge knowledge gap. Frankly, there's a knowledge gap with Jewish students who don't know how to respond to this. So yes, I think there needs to be more education, better education. I think when colleges and universities send out these voluminous student codes and go through a whole introductory per introduction period, um, they need to address these issues. And I think it also comes down to um, our media and our public education. I think the news media has to explain these issues. What does this phrase mean to some people? What does it mean to other people? I think um, it would behoove some of the major outlets to go through the kind of history we just talked about. Um, context, context. Um, and they are so quick to just, um, you know, pick out the issue of the moment of the second and give it a political spin that they don't do their readers, their listeners, their viewers um, any kind of favors. And I think there are lots of ways public education happens. Um, there are, although this is a very elite audience, I realize there are two shows on Broadway, one called Harmony, which is about a um, mixed choir, an acapella choir during the 1930s in uh, Germany, half Jewish, half Gentile. Um, there's another play called The Prayer for French Jews, which traces one family um, in uh, history. So I think there's lots of ways. It used to be, it used to be when I was a kid that almost all kids at some point read Anne Frank's diary. What mm. happened to that? I guess the book burners and the book banners said, oh no, we can't have that. Um, so, you know, more education, more discussion, um, a richer environment so that people at least are sensitized. I don't expect everyone to be a walking encyclopedia of 
Jewish history or African-American history or Asian history, but some familiarity. And I also think there's an emotional and uh, kind of behavioral problem that we've gotten into, which is people don't listen to one another. They don't talk calmly in a context. They're out there screaming at the top of their lungs. Um, and I think universities should encourage people to sit down and talk. There's one university, and I'm sorry, I can't remember it, where the head of the Jewish studies and the head of the um, Arab studies are sitting down together to hold classrooms, discussions, talking groups. That is exactly the place of a university. If I could point to one positive thing, why isn't every university doing things like that so that you teach Gosh, that's what they're all about. They're educational institutions. So teach, teach. Boy, that is the best advice of all. We had a whole series of questions about the media and politics, but you're going to have to promise to come back because we're out of time. So I, I, I want to follow up on the political questions and particularly how the media covers Donald Trump, how the media covers uh, President Biden. Why, you know, in the same way that we we're talking about, you need equality in coverage of the First Amendment and in enforcement of the First Amendment. I think we need some equality in coverage. But will you promise to come back and talk to us I again? I will. I will. I always enjoy this because, first of all, Victor does something that we badly need, which is provide the perspective and the understanding of a generation that um, gets a really bad rap. Um, and I always enjoy that. And Jill, who's will always be my Watergate gal, um, <laughs> I always love coming on. So thank you very most and um, have a wonderful, wonderful holiday season. You too. Happy Hanukkah, Saksumich, and Bye. New Year. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jennifer. Jill, that was such a fascinating discussion with um, Jen Rubin and so important. And I want to pick up on something that she said at the end, which is um, the important stories that many and books that many young people aren't reading. Um, she mentioned The Diary of Anne Frank, which I have never read. Um, but why don't you tell us about sort of your perspective on this? Um, because a lot of those narratives aren't really being told as much as they should be. Of course, it should. I, I think her point and her rendition of history was fantastic. Everyone should listen to that full segment of her explaining the history of Israel. But yeah, I mean, I, of course, did read the Diary of Anne Frank and have gone to many Holocaust museums and memorials and uh, Yad Vashem in Israel. Um, I've been to concentration camps in uh, Czechoslovakia, and one in maybe not Poland, I can't, one other country. Um, and seeing is unbelievable. I mean, it's an, a searing experience. Um, but I've also seen many um, movies. I've also, I have relatives who had numbers in, tattooed on their arms from concentration camps. Um, had one experience in France one weekend with an amazing Holocaust survivor and going to Lyon to watch the trial of Klaus Barbie, one of the last people to be tried for the Holocaust. So it's definitely embedded in me in ways that aren't. 
Um, and a friend, I just, I'm going to hold up a book for anyone who's watching, but I'll, and also because it matches my orange blouse, Don't Look For Me by Ann Donovan. Um, Ann and Danny are, are very dear friends in England. And um, his mother um, was a resistance fighter in World War II. And this is the story of Hetty, his mother, Danny's mother, um, and how she rescued with total bravery. Um, so it's it's a great book. I've just it just arrived as a Christmas present, and so I'm starting to read it. But don't look for me by Ann Donovan is going to be on my list along with the Diary of Anne Frank. And yeah, I'm not surprised you didn't read it, but I hope that you will read. Yeah. Uh, the Diary of Anne Frank. I and when I'm through with Don't Look For Me, I'll lend it to you. And it's and it's a shame that it's being banned in certain states. Um, I think it's in Florida. Any book that's banned is bad. Yes, exactly. But it also shows what a threat those sort of narratives are for people who do hold power. So it, it is, you know, I, I think um, Diary of Anne Frank is definitely on my list. I'm also, um, I was talking to you, I read um, in high school this great book called All the Light We Cannot See, which has since um, and recently been um, rendered into a TV series on Netflix. And it's a great series, um, talks, it's, it's a dueling perspective between a blind girl and um, someone who's fighting for Germany at the time. And um, they they end up uniting um together and and it's a great narrative just about sort of that period of history that um not, not a lot of people i think learn about uh anymore so it's a great if you want to read the book if you want to watch the series i think both versions are actually great um so take a take a look or, or watch at that if you're if you want some good holiday watches um they're, they're well, i hope everyone listening today really understands the complexity of the issue of the first amendment yeah. where we want to have dialogue we want to have civil dialogue. We do not want to have any kind of violence. The marchers in Charlottesville who uh, plowed a car and killed um, a, a person, that's not allowed. Speech may be allowed. And at which point speech becomes harassment or threatening or so disturbing that it can't, or disruptive. I mean, as Jen was saying, in the classroom, you have to have discussion, you can't have protest. Uh, in the library, well, I would say protest is a bad thing. That should be a space where everyone can come to study. Um, so I, I hope everyone will think about what the universities could do to protect going forward, what they should have done in this instance, but more importantly, what they will do going forward. And um, I, I mean, I think, I obviously went to a Big Ten land-grant college, and I had robust discussions with diverse points of view. Um, so I think that was good. I certainly did at Columbia in those days. Um, uh, the Vietnam War was still a big issue, and um, I, I just think we need the discussion. We need to be exposed. I, I learned in college reading Areopagitica in the free marketplace of ideas, truth will out. And the only way we're going to understand is if we talk to each other and listen to each other. So uh, that's that's something I hope our listeners got from today's show. Definitely. And we thank Jen Rubin for coming on our podcast this week. We will be 
off next week because of the holiday season, but we'll be back after the new year with another great episode of iGen Politics. In the meantime, please be sure to rate and review us wherever you follow your podcast. Find us there. You can also subscribe to us on youtube.com slash Politicon, where you can also watch us in video format and see Jill's great pins and her great background. And uh, she has some flowers as well that are worth seeing. Yeah. Um, they're, they're great red. Um, what, are they, what type of flowers? Poinsettias. Poinsettias. Of course, what's the holiday? And we do have a special show planned for the first of the year yes. with Dean Obadila and Max Brooks, who discuss, again, the same issue of Palestinian and Israeli. Uh, Max Brooks is Jewish and Dean is not. So it'll be an interesting discussion. And they've, they've had exchanges, um, written exchanges that are fascinating. Definitely. So that'll be a great episode that you won't want to miss. We wish you and your family and your loved ones a great holiday season, a great new year. And as I say, we will see you next year. 